Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, July 8th. When the Marshall Fire burned down over 1,000 homes in Boulder County in December, it also destroyed possessions, couches, children's toys, and family heirlooms. Since then, many fire victims have dug through the rubble to find anything that might be salvageable. In the final part of our series, From the Ashes, Lee Patterson brings us a story about salvaged objects that contain memories. Zula Yashtuk's ruby jewelry smelled like smoke after she recovered the pieces from her father's house in Superior. Here are the earrings, and here are some other pieces. The smell, she says, was horrible. I aired them out um, for like weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Zula's dad bought these teardrop earrings for her mom during a trip to Ukraine years ago. After her mom died from cancer in 2013, they sat in her dad's room. Just before the pandemic hit, on Christmas Eve, Zula wore the earrings for the first time paired with a pink dress. And I have one picture sitting on the couch in that dress looking very pink <laughs> and, the, and the ruby earrings very prominently sort of like figuring into that photograph. Zula also managed to recover some old photos from the debris, black and whites of her dad as a baby, a high school student, and a hippie in Poland. Other items pulled from the rubble, a wrench, a ceramic tile, jars of pickled cabbage and pears. Even this fire couldn't get to the Polish pickling process. That is, <laughs> that is one constant. The family was able to salvage a small variety of possessions. For Zula, who grew up in the house but now lives overseas, she was eager to go through the debris. She says that process was crucial for her being able to move forward. For her dad, Kaz Yashtuk, it's different. I was just looking at everything and uh, I was so devastated that no, nothing would bring any joy to me. In losing his home and almost all of his belongings, Kaz says he also lost memories and associations. I have to rebuild my, my life, but I need to be able to say goodbye to my previous life, maybe keep it somewhere in my memory. Kaz came to the U.S. from Poland in 1989 for work. He was a software engineer. Eventually, he and his wife and two daughters moved into a brand new house in Superior. Kaz lived there for 26 years, doing many of the updates and renovations with his own hands. So we put a lot of energy into building life in foreign country, let's say. I had this feeling that I actually made it in America. And out of sudden, Everything collapsed. In the months after, Zula stayed in Colorado to help her dad, but has since gone back to Sweden, where she lives. Kaz is still living in a rental house in Boulder. There's one recovered item that has connected the two, before and after the fire. A small blue and yellow tile Zula had bought for her dad during a trip to Portugal years ago. 
it was sitting on the window pane in our kitchen where my dad loved doing the dishes and looking out the window onto the green belt. During sifting, Zula looked down and saw the tile's bright colors peeking through the debris. Now it sits on the windowsill above the kitchen sink in Kaz's rental house. It represents the connection that we have. So it's just so much more to it than this is a thing, you know. We are in this situation that she is far away from from me. And this little piece uh, always reminded me that she is somewhere. And uh, not only that she is somewhere, but that she is somewhere for me. So... So it it is a little piece which is very valuable for me. The Yashtaks are considering rebuilding, but are underinsured, like so many others who lost their homes in the fire. Regardless of where the family ends up, the blue and yellow tile from Portugal will be there on the kitchen windowsill. Lee Patterson, KUNC. To listen to our entire three-part series about objects recovered from the rubble of the Marshall Fire, go to knc.org. This project was produced in collaboration with Eli Imadali and the Boulder Reporting Lab. Hundreds of people summit Mount Everest each year, but before this year, fewer than 10 of them were black. In May, the first all-black team of climbers successfully reached the summit as part of the Full Circle Everest expedition. Some members of the team were from Colorado. To learn more about the expedition, KUNC's Samantha Kutsia spoke to Eddie Taylor. He's a member of the Full Circle Everest team and a chemistry teacher from Boulder. To start, can you tell me about how you ended up as a member of the Full Circle Everest team? So a couple years ago, I was climbing in Uray, Colorado, uh, just on a normal climbing trip. And by chance, I ran into Phil Henderson, the leader of the expedition, and um, really just we we started chatting here and there. We traded numbers. Um, next time I went to Western Colorado, we went skiing together. And uh, he told me about this project he was interested in. And he was starting to put together and asked if I'd be a part of it. I assume he kind of explained the the goal of the project to you a little bit. I mean, what drove you to be part of the expedition? Yeah. So, I mean, initially he told me about it and I wasn't incredibly interested. Um, like I'm a climber. I rock climb quite a bit. Um, but big mountains is something that I kind of dabble in. And um, anyways, long story short, I wasn't that interested in going to Everest. And I really never saw it as like this objective that was obtainable for me. Um, however, he kind of convinced me and talked about how I had a lot of experience and I'd be a great asset to the team. And then we started talking about kind of the bigger picture of it. And like at that time, we didn't even know the disparity, the quite the disparity of how many black people had been on Everest, other than there just wasn't very many. And so... Um, kind of just by seeing kind of the importance of representation and what this expedition could potentially do to future outdoor enthusiasts and other people who just want to be, like not necessarily climbing, but just be in the outdoors, that this could be a powerful thing. Right. You didn't really have your sights set on Everest. I, I just knowing a little bit about that expedition and just climbing Everest in general, it's not easy. It takes months of training and there are obviously risks. When you get to the mountain, and acclimating and all that. What was your experience on Everest like? I mean, luckily, the my entire Everest experience, experience was pretty smooth. Um, we put a lot of time into planning and to uh, getting ready for the trip. And so by the time we got there, I mean, it was just kind of like everything fell into place. Things were really smooth. 
our rotations going up and down the mountain went smoothly. The weather worked out. And so weirdly, it wasn't that eventful because of how smoothly everything went. And it was just, you could really enjoy that experience. You mentioned how you and Phil chatted a bit about like the bigger picture and how it's important for representation to get on the mountain. What did you and the team want to accomplish through the expedition? Yeah, I mean, I think there was kind of a lot of goals in the expedition. I mean, primarily, I mean, it's the tallest mountain in the world. I mean, as a climber, just as a person, there's something exciting about um, just about that, you know. And so I think that was one thing that we all had in common was that, yeah, there is something exciting about climbing Everest. Another thing was just that in terms of the outdoors, like I did there's not a lot of black people in the outdoors. There's not a lot of people of color in the outdoors. If you Google climbing, skiing, or any of these sports, you're going to, you're not going to see a lot of people that look like you. And so that was one thing that hopefully through this trip, we thought we can kind of start to change the narrative and kind of give some type of, I don't know, heritage to black climbers and more, more people out there doing that. And I think, like we said, there was 10 people already who have climbed Everest at like, there's been 10 black people who have climbed Everest, but that took a lot of work and a lot of search and a lot of digging to even find that. Cause like easily I found four people on Google. And other than that, we couldn't really, we didn't know. And so one big thing that was part of this trip was just trying to tell that story. And so other people could follow along and see that this is something that was possible. When you look at climbing in the outdoors community in general, I feel like there really isn't that much diversity represented why is it so important for underrepresented communities to see themselves in this industry? Um, I mean, I think it's just important in every industry, to be honest, like um, in climbing in the outdoors, it's a space that people um, haven't felt comfortable, but then you go to basketball and yeah, there was a time when there wasn't very many black basketball players. And now there is um, you look like I'm a teacher and I think 2% of the population or 2% of teachers are black males. And so I mean, it's not just in outdoor sports, but this is just something that we collectively have an influence in. And so maybe we can make a change in our in our one area. And now to kind of come back to your personal journey, how do you feel now that you successfully summited Everest, especially with kind of that apprehension that you had at the beginning of all this? Oh, I mean, it's kind of a relief, to be honest, that like, not necessarily a relief, but that the project went smoothly. We got the funding to be able to go. Everyone came home safe um, and healthy. And so, you know, now it's kind of a waiting game to see, you know, did this, this trip make a difference? And, you know, in 10 years from now, are we going to see more and more people of color in the outdoors? And when we go hiking or to our climbing areas or even on Everest or other big mountains, you know, we talk about how this trip could have an impact with climbers and people of color. But kind of one thing we're seeing is that um, we were in schools and my wife's a teacher and we, and I have a lot of teacher friends. And so we were in schools locally as well as um, schools across the country for other people who are just interested in this expedition. And one thing we're seeing, and it's not just children of color, but it's a lot of students are interested in our expedition. And it, it's just like when we grew up, we saw Everest as this or when I grew up, I saw Everest um, through the lens of, uh, you know, the disasters and all the crazy things that happen up there. And so hopefully now it's kind of shifting that narrative of this is a place that people can go and they can have a really great time. And maybe they're not just going all the way to Everest. Maybe they're going to base camp or maybe they're just visitting the Khumbu Valley in Nepal. It's very accessible to a lar- large variety of people, not just that 
like one small group that was going to go off on this crazy adventure. I think a lot, a lot more people could do that. So Eddie Taylor is a climber and member of the Full Circle Everest Expedition. Eddie, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Yeah, no problem. Nice speaking with you, too. report looks at the emergency response during the first 36 hours of the most destructive fire in Colorado history. The Marshall Fire destroyed more than 1,000 homes on December 30th, adding up to an estimated $1 billion in damages. Two people also died in the blaze. KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with colleague Lee Patterson to learn more about this report. Lee, what is the purpose of this kind of report, an after-action report? Yeah, so the idea is basically to look back on an incident in order to figure out what can be learned from it and improved on. The Marshall Fire After Action Report was published on June 14th, and it includes information from departments in Boulder County and Superior in Louisville, as well as the Mountain View Fire Protection District, as well as Louisville Fire and Police. So the report looks at the weather conditions leading up to that day and on that day. It lays out a timeline of events discusses what did and did not go well in terms of the emergency response, and it makes recommendations on how agencies can improve. In this report, what's most significant in terms of what went wrong? Well, there's a lot of information in it, but a major theme is communication, how people were alerted to the emergency or in many cases not alerted on the day of the Marshall Fire. We know that county data indicates that as few as one in 10 of the people in the area actually received an alert that day. And that's in part because in the old system, which is something called Everbridge, landlines were automatically loaded in, but otherwise people needed to opt in to to sign up online themselves to get those alerts on their cell phones. So some improvements to that system are already underway now, including getting something called a wireless emergency alert system set up. It's a system that can alert cell phones within a geographical area without having to sign up. Other communication issues are outlined as well in this report, um, improving the 911 system, giving dispatchers the ability to send out alert themselves if field units are too busy during an incident, Um, a need to review siren programming. Certain sirens weren't activated that day by first responders. And also it points out a need for multilingual messaging, which is perhaps something that technology can fix. Lee, we know there was some door-to-door evacuating of residents on the part of law enforcement. Uh, The Boulder SWAT team, for example, helped evacuate some people in Louisville. But we also know that many fire survivors evacuated on their own. Does the report address this problem? Yes. uh, The fire was moving faster than some of the evacuation orders could be developed and launched, according to the report. And that's really a theme here, that the whole thing happened so quickly that there was just no defined strategy in how to deal with the Marshall Fire period. In terms of evacuations, it points to a need 